days, even weeks, because I don't want to pull the trigger and click that checkout button if I'm not completely sure of what I'm buying. And so often when I finally do make that purchase, so often I look back and I think, why did I stress out about that? Even if I made the wrong choice, how bad could it actually be, right? See, so often my sitting on the fence was really unnecessary. And so often we can just be tired of being confronted with all these decisions in life. Uh, how do I, next slide, yeah. Uh, so many decisions that just keep coming at us and we just give up sometimes. We, we don't want to make a decision. We, we're just sick and tired of it. And in our passage today, we meet some people who just can't make up their minds when it comes to Jesus. They want to sit on the fence. They want to wait and see. And then we're going to hear Jesus give them a warning about their indecisiveness, a warning that we should actually be paying close attention to as well. Now, earlier in the Gospel of Luke, we've seen Jesus perform incredible miracles. He, he drives out spirits. He heals multitudes of people with leprosy, those who are paralyzed. He even raises people from the dead. We've seen Jesus feed thousands of people with just a couple of fish and some bread. But we've also seen, along with these amazing miracles, that the religious leaders of the time, they've been very wary, skeptical about Jesus. Right? Because he's, they're not impressed with Jesus hanging out with sinners. They're not impressed. They're horrified, in fact, when Jesus claims to have the power and authority to forgive sin. And so it's no surprise that here again in Luke 11, that the Pharisees are hot on Jesus' heels, trying to find fault with him. This time, Jesus does another miracle. He heals a demon-possessed man who was mute right? This demon's power has been neutralized. The man is restored to spiritual, physical health, and the crowds are astonished. But not so the Pharisees. What do they say? By Beelzebul, the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. Now, just as a side note here, isn't it interesting that the Pharisees don't go down the path of calling Jesus a fraud or a con artist, that he's tricking people with his sleight-of-hand magic tricks? No, Jesus' miracles are so public, so indisputable, that the only way that they can sort of trap Jesus is to say that his power is from Satan, that it's demonic. And we even see this in the historical accounts of Jesus uh, in the early church as well. And so both in the Jewish Talmud, who, who don't believe that Jesus was a Christ, uh, and also the, the secular Roman accounts, Jesus is often called a sorcerer because his power was just so widely witnessed. It was indisputable. Uh, back to our passage today. With the Pharisees accusing Jesus of being in league with Satan, Jesus stops them in his tracks, in their tracks. Because Jesus says, hold on a minute, what you're saying doesn't even make sense. See, here's the first problem. If Jesus was from Satan, then actively opposing Satan makes no sense. If Jesus is working for Satan, why would he undermine the very work that Satan is trying to do, right? What is Satan trying to do? To oppress God's people, to keep them terrified, to keep them from from, from coming back to God. 
And yet this is exactly what Jesus is doing. He is bringing glory to God. He is setting people free from oppression. It doesn't make sense what you're saying here, guys. Why would you say that Jesus is on Satan's side when he's actively opposing Satan? But there's a second problem. And the problem is that if Jesus is a minion of Satan because he's casting out demons, then what about you guys? Now, we know from historical writings at that time that the casting out of demons was a regularly practiced uh, thing by religious leaders at that time. And so from Jesus' words, we can also assume that the Pharisees themselves were also casting out demons. And so he's saying, you can't have it both ways, guys. Either you who cast out demons are also being empowered by Satan, or clearly I am not. And so Jesus says, your very own people will judge you. And so if it's clear that Jesus is not allied with Satan, then there can only be one other conclusion. Verse 20. But if I drive out demons, verse 20, by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. This if that Jesus says here has no uncertainty. It's merely rhetorical, right? Uh, what evidence have, has, have we seen already that Jesus is embodying God's power? Wasn't it clear when the Spirit of God descended upon him at his baptism? Wasn't it clear miracle after miracle fulfilling Scripture as we've seen in all the Gospels, not just in the Gospel of Luke? Isn't it clear from his teaching, elevating, fulfilling the law of Moses, not abandoning it? And so now with all these signs that Satan is losing his grip on God's people, that his demons are being driven out left, right, and center, that should be the final piece of the puzzle falling into place. The kingdom of God has come. Jesus is this king of the kingdom that God is bringing into our world today. And so Jesus goes on. What did you expect would happen when God finally comes into the world? When God finally comes to undo the work of Satan? Now, if you're walking along the street and you see this, you probably think, man, that that building is secure. There's no way anyone is getting in or out of it, right? But then if you're walking along and you see this instead, you probably think, oh, whoever owns that building, they're in trouble. Right? Better sell those shares if I own shares in that building. You probably think something big is going down right now. And Jesus is saying, look what's happening. Look what I am doing to Satan's minions. The old order, Satan's power, his kingdom, It's being tied up. It's being restrained. It's marking an end of an old order of oppression and deception. A regime change in the cosmic order of things is happening right before your eyes, guys. Take a good look of what I'm doing to Satan's power. And after you take a good look, make sure that you respond rightly. Now, If we remember back uh, earlier on, one of the responses that we did see uh, in verse 16 was that some tested Jesus by asking him for a sign from heaven. So after seeing this uh, amazing miracle, what was their response? Their response was, give us more evidence. (laughs) Give us a sign, right? 
we don't have enough evidence. But Jesus says this to them, verse 29. This is a wicked generation. It asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. Jesus says, no, I will not give you a sign. All you'll get is the, is the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now, even sitting here today, you might be wondering, what, what does this all mean? It, it sounds a bit confusing even to us. Uh, but if we look at uh, the other Gospels, and in hindsight, if we consider what Jesus does later on, it, it's probably clear that he's referring to his death and resurrection, right? As Jonah was in the belly of a fish for three days and then re-emerges, uh, so too will Jesus uh, be buried after being crucified and dies and then comes back after three days. This is quite an obscure reference, isn't it? Particularly to those people at the time, they probably wouldn't have any idea what Jesus is talking about. And so Jesus is saying, no sign for you, just this obscure reference to my death and resurrection. Now, why does Jesus do this? Well, as we've seen it right at the beginning, the evidence about who Jesus is should already be abundantly clear, right? Throughout the book of Luke, we've seen miracle after miracle, his teaching, his fulfillment of scripture. We should be certain already as to who Jesus is, if we've been paying attention. And so Jesus now continues to condemn them with two further illustrations. Again, look at the story of Jonah that you Pharisees, you teachers of God's word, you know so well. Now, in that book, this reluctant prophet Jonah, God tells him to go and preach to the Ninevites uh, who are God's enemies, right? Who attacked God's people and oppressed them severely. But what does Jonah do? He does the opposite. He hates the idea of them potentially repenting. And so he runs far away. He doesn't want them to hear God's message and repent. But then when God forces his hand, Jonah finally goes and preaches to them. And this is what he says uh, in Jonah 3 verse 4. Jonah began a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now, if you think about what Jonah has been asked to do, this is a pathetic attempt at preaching. He just says one line, 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. There's no command to repent. There are no details whatsoever on how to stop God's judgment from coming. But look at the response. Verse 5. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. Now, this response is so incredible, it's almost comical, right? They believed right away. The entire city, no matter their wealth or status, they put on sackcloth, this symbol of mourning and repentance, and they fasted before Yahweh, God of Israel, God of the world. And of course, the city was spared. Consider that, Exhibit A. But now look at Exhibit B. Jesus points them to the Book of Kings. The Queen of the South, Queen Sheba, she hears about the fame of King Solomon and his relationship with God. And, and so she comes to test Solomon, whether what she's heard is true. And as she listens to the wisdom of Solomon, as she sees the evidence of God's provision and grace over Solomon's kingdom, 
she is overwhelmed. And so not only does she praise Solomon, she praises God and she sends massive amounts of gold and gifts to Solomon. Now, why is Jesus presenting Exhibit A and Exhibit B before the Pharisees, right? The city of Nineveh, the queen of the south, they heard God's message, and what did they do? They responded rightly. They accepted the message with repentance on one hand and with praise and an outpouring of offering on the other. But now look at Jesus. Someone who has come which far exceeds that pathetic teaching of Jonah. Someone has come whose deeds and miracles are far more magnificent and mighty than that of Solomon. Someone who has come whose power and compassion far outweighs anything that they have ever seen before. And so how can you reject Jesus? is clearly so much greater than anyone these teachers of the law has ever seen in their history with God. Secondly, have you noticed who these people in the story are? Right? Exhibit A and Exhibit B. In the second example, it's a Gentile, this this unclean, non-Jew who has nothing to do with God's promises, nothing to do with Abraham. She doesn't have God's word, and yet she believes. And in the first example, it's even worse. It's Nineveh. It's God's enemies. They're the ones who hear God's word and they repent. These worshippers of false gods who, who plundered the cities of God's people when they were confronted with God's message, with God's greatness, even when they lacked the evidence that all of uh, Jesus' people were seeing, they made the right call. But these religious leaders, despite all their knowledge of God's word, despite all that they should have expected to come when God's kingdom finally arrived, they continue to question Jesus. And so it's clear that what's happening here isn't that the Pharisees were simply doubting out of a sincere heart. They just really wanted to make sure. But actually, they refused to believe in spite of overwhelming evidence. Come on, Jesus. Give me another sign. Give me another miracle. But God is not some performing monkey, especially when there's already so much evidence that has been given. Now, I think many of us will be familiar with this uh, picture today. Uh, When I was going through uni, this was the main method (laughs) that we went around uh, the uni campus to share the message of Jesus. Uh, It's a two ways to live presentation. Have you you guys uh, seen this before? Yeah? Uh, It it summarizes the gospel in six really short uh, pictures and headings. Uh, God created the world. Humans reject God uh, to live our own way. um, And the punishment is death. But the good news is that Jesus comes and dies in our place so that we don't have to. And, And more than that, he rises to new life to be the king of the world. But what's so great about this presentation is that, as the name suggests, at the very end, it's clear that there are only two ways to live in light of this fact. You can either live with Jesus as king, trusting in him, obeying Jesus, or you can continue to live with yourself as king, living your own way. And I don't know if you've uh, ever used this tool, 
uh, to share the gospel with your family or friends uh, before. Uh, But sooner or later, you'll come across some people who don't like these two options. Uh, They might say, look, I'm not rejecting Jesus. I actually like Jesus. You know, I I like his his teaching. I like uh, what he's on about. But look, I don't really want to go the full way. I don't want to say I want to worship him with my whole life. I'll, I'll just take the middle ground, right? Or they might say, I'm not quite ready to fully commit to Jesus. I want to live this third way. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, reject Jesus, accept Jesus. But I want to live the good way. I, I just want to be a good person without Jesus in my life, right? Have you heard of, heard of the, uh, those people who, who, who want to find that middle, middle road? But here's the problem with that. When we're faced with the king of creation, how can you actually be offensive? Just take this for an example. If you're in the army and the general comes up to you and orders you to go and attack the enemy or something, and you say, look, look, I don't quite agree with your assessment, but I'm not going to run away either. I'm not going to reject what you're saying. I'm not going to do the opposite of what you're saying. I'm just going to stick here. I'm going to take the middle ground. I'm going to sit on the fence and and see how this battle plays out, and then I'll make a decision. Well, that's still insubordination, right? And so how much more when we're claiming to sit on the fence when it comes to the king of creation, the king of God's kingdom? And so while some Pharisees are outright labeling Jesus as working on behalf of Satan, others just seem happy to not decide. Uh, They've seen all the signs, they've seen all the miracles, and they say, no, we're not quite sure yet. Just give us another miracle. How can we be really sure, Jesus? Just show us another one, and maybe another one, and maybe another one after that. On the outside, it might seem like a reasonable and wise thing to do. On the inside, it's simply that they don't want to commit. In fact, with an attitude like this, it's clear that no amount of miracles would convince them the reality of who Jesus is. So in a way, sitting on the fence is a choice. They're choosing not to decide. And so listen to what Jesus says to the crowd here in verse 23. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. In our day and age, this kind of talk makes us feel uncomfortable, doesn't it? But if we are to face the claims of Jesus as what they are, if we are to look at the evidence, the reality, that there are really only two options when it comes to responding to the king of the universe, well, that's that's the only way, isn't it? You're either against Jesus or you're for Jesus. And so if there are any of us here today, maybe you've been here for a long time, but you haven't quite decided to follow Jesus yet. Can I just ask you to really just stop and think about what is stopping you from following Jesus? Now, you you may genuinely need to find out more, right? You, You might have genuine, sincere questions about the Bible, about Jesus. You might need more time to to process what you've been hearing and learning. If that's so, don't stop. Keep finding more about Jesus. Keep finding answers. But perhaps you're someone that's been here and you have all the evidence you need to make the decision, but you simply haven't chosen to, to follow Jesus yet. Sitting on the fence might be a choice that you're quite comfortable with. 
And if that's so, please take the time to really stop and consider all that you know about Jesus. His claims, his teachings, his work on the cross for you, the forgiveness that he offers. Stop and consider why you might be so reluctant to commit to Jesus. I hope that after you consider that, you might see that Jesus truly is the one worth following, the one who has proven himself to have all authority, the one who loves you beyond all understanding, the one that's worth committing your life to. But Jesus also gives us another warning to those of us who might look good on the outside, but on the inside, we're actually still fence sitters. Uh, Verses 24 to 26. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places, seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, the house, it finds the house swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. Now, at first you're like probably wondering, what is this on about? What is Jesus talking about this story about impure spirits, but it's actually an illustration of what rejecting Jesus and sitting on the fence looks like on the inside. It's like someone trying to clean their house of the filth and muck of all the things wrong in their lives, but the core problem hasn't been addressed. Because there's no point of getting rid of your health issues, coming to Jesus to to cure you of disease, to get rid of demons even. Right? Whatever they might be. For us, we might even think of uh, the long list of uh, self-help books that we read or the videos out there, and maybe weight loss, eat healthy, exercise, declutter your life, whatever it might be. Exercises to improve your mental health, physical health, social health, financial health. Now, if you're pushing to improve in these areas, that's great. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. But the issue is, if we are trying to do all these things And that's the end-all and be-all. We do all these things without addressing the bigger problem. What is the bigger problem? That we don't have the strong man dwelling within us to guard us, to guide us, to take possession of us. Right? If Jesus isn't the one coming in to fill our lives with meaning and purpose and direction, the one that we are truly looking for looking to for true well-being, not just physical, but spiritual. Even if we get rid of all these other problems in our lives, haven't we simply just cleaned the house to invite someone else to come in? Some other problem to come in? So Jesus is saying, we need to be fully committed to Jesus. Now, during my early days uh, going to a Christian church for the first time during uni, you probably wouldn't have noticed anything wrong with my Christian life. Because by all measures, outwardly, I was a keen Christian. Uh, I went to church every week. I attended Bible studies. Uh, My behaviors also changed. I used to swear all the time, but then I cleaned up my language. Uh, Even privately, my behaviors changed. I stopped looking at pornography. But there was something really wrong with my life. Because all my behaviors, all the cleaning up of my life had nothing to do with Jesus. Jesus wasn't king. I stopped swearing because I wanted to fit in with my new church friends who never swore. 
I stopped looking at porn because I listened to this really powerful sermon making me realize how disgusting pornography was and I was just ashamed and disgusted at myself. But see, I had not made this commitment to invite Jesus into my life. It was still all me focused. It was all me trying with my own effort to forge on ahead to create a better me. And so actually, I was a fence sitter. I was taking the middle road, I thought, that I could become a better person without the forgiveness of Jesus, without grace, without the power of, of, of Jesus within me working. One foot in the church, so to speak, but another foot firmly disregarding all Jesus said I needed in my life. And it wasn't until months later when it finally hit me that something was missing, when I needed God's grace. I needed Christ to save me, to be dwelling within me. Friends, are you fence-sitting? Even when it looks like we're doing all right on the outside, when our behaviours are, are matching up exactly with all those around us, are we practically fence-sitters? Because the gospel isn't supposed to be this side insurance policy in case things goes wrong, right? When we're really chasing the stuff that we can earn, that we can acquire in this lifetime, uh, but God's promise of forgiveness, this offer of eternal life, we can so relegate that to just being like a bonus extra. Yes, I really want this, but this eternal life stuff, oh yeah, yeah, that's also good, but it's somewhere back there. Now, if we truly understand Jesus' role as king of his kingdom, if we've witnessed the unraveling of the old order and seeing Satan's regime falling before our eyes, then we have to go all in. And just very briefly, what, what might going all in look like? Well, Jesus actually tells us. There's this really nice exchange right in the middle of our passage today that I skipped over, verses 27 to 28. As Jesus was saying these things, a woman in the crowd called out, Blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. But then Jesus says, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. And so what, what does true blessing look like? What does it look like to have Jesus dwelling within you, guarding and empowering you? On one level, it's simply hearing the word of God and obeying it. How wonderfully simple is that? It's so simple, but I think if we're honest with ourselves, it's also extremely challenging, right? Uh, and so a question that I find it very helpful for us to ask from time to time is, when was the last time I actually changed my attitude and my behavior after reading God's Word? And I find it's challenging because sometimes I don't like the answer that if I'm honest with myself, I answer. We can so easily do our 10 to 15 minutes of quiet time every single day, praying to God, listening to His Word. But how easy is it for us to day in, day out, have God's Word sort of roll off our backs like, like water off a duck's back? And I'm, I'm not saying now that every single quiet time is going to be life-changing and, and to blow your socks off, right? But over time, we are to expect change, right? We are to expect growth in our repentance, in our obedience, and in our intimacy with God. And so asking this question, when was the last time I actually changed myself after reading God's Word? That could be a good way to sort of assess where we're lying 
uh, on the radar of our commitment to Jesus. And if we've understood our passage today, then we have a good reason to fully commit, don't we? To put our hope in the strong man. Don't just look on Jesus and be a fence-sitter. Invite Jesus into our life day by day and devote ourselves to serving him. There's no sitting on the fence when it comes to Jesus. Commit yourselves to the kingdom and God's king. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have shown us the king of your kingdom, the king who has smashed all the power of the old regime that used to oppress us when we used to live in sin and live without you, without hope. And we thank you that Jesus has completely crushed that and is now offering us eternal life, life with you, life in light, in righteousness. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us to choose and to keep choosing to commit our lives to Jesus and to you. And we pray for anyone here, if anyone here has been sitting on the fence and is still sitting on the fence, that, Lord, you would challenge them, you would confront them with Jesus' claims and who Jesus is, all the evidence out there. And, Father, by your Spirit, will you enable them to fully commit to follow Jesus. And we ask this in your Son's name. Amen.